So today we are continuing in our series in the book of James. We are in our fifth week of this series, and I hope it's been blessing you um, and not hurting you too badly because the book of James can be a little bit challenging to walk through because James is one of the most blunt writers in all of Scripture, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's a struggle sometimes to go through the book of James, and it's been literally undoing me on a pretty regular basis as I, as I study through this. So we're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 today, and so we're going week by week, just breaking the book, book down. Sometimes we're going scripture by scripture, other times we're using concepts and ideas. Today we're doing a little bit of both, and so we're going to get right into it in an effort to continue in our time to get you out of here at a good hour. Also, I want to make mention of one other thing, sorry. Next week, this is very important, very, very important. Next week is opening day for the NFL football season. Don't laugh, it is important. And so if you have a favorite football team and you have a jersey of that football team, wear it to church next week. I'll be standing up here rocking a Washington Redskins football jersey because that's who I am, a Redskins fan. You are all welcome here, even Cowboys fans. Um, I have to say that because, yeah. I'm going to get into a whole other tangent if I don't. Let's get back in the book of James. Chapter 2, verse number 14. The Bible says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give the person, that person any food or clothing what good does that do? So you, you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. The challenge to those first passages of Scripture is it would seemingly, and I say seemingly, and we're going to answer this question in just a couple of minutes, contradict writings by Paul. When he would say that we would saved by grace through faith and not by our own efforts, that it is God's unmerited favor. And it would seem that that contradicts the idea that James has here. But we'll, we'll, answer, we'll answer that question here in just a minute. Because I believe personally that a lot of churches have even developed doctrine or theology around the idea of faith and works. That has minimized the work of the cross. And then on top of it, people have developed a theology or a doctrine about faith only with no works that also minimizes the work of the cross. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Continuing on, verse number 18. Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Verse number 19, when you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish... Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered the son of Isaac, his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see, so you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab, the prostitute, is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. 
Verse 26 and our last verse for today. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Okay, loosen up your toes now that they've been stomped on by the word of God. Because that's a tough, that's a tough passage of scripture. So let's look at what it says. In verse number 14, we're going to break this passage down some, and we're going to get into a little bit of some detail in some of these passages of Scripture. If you've been here for any length of time, you know one of my passions in life is studying God's Word and taking it to a very, very deep level in its original text, its original language, its original context, and even to the point that even more recently in the last year or two, couple years of my life, I actually have purchased a study product, a study, a study book that helps me to understand its it's grammar and why that's gr- the grammar is important to the, to the Word of God. So I never was a fan of English in high school, and now I've got to kind of relearn it. So let me, if you're a student in here, I know there's some students in this, in, this, in this room this morning. Let me just encourage you with something. Don't ever think that something in school is useless. I promise you, because in some way, some shape or form, at some point in time, you're likely to use the very thing you said was worthless. I was that person. Algebra to me was worthless. Waste of my time until I took a job as a, full, as a salesman at 84 Lumber Company and had to open a set of blueprints and figure out how much material it took to build a house. Guess what that is? Algebra. If I'd have just learned it in high school, I'd have been able to do it better, but no, I was 23 years old and had to learn it all over again. So same thing now with English. If I'd have just learned grammar in school and paid attention to it, which I did get taught it, but I didn't really pay attention all that well. Didn't pay attention to school very much at all, so just don't do that. But, um, but it's actually got value in life, and now it has even more value to my study of Scripture. So students in this place, nothing in your education is worthless. Nothing. Everything matters. Everything's important. So let's break down verse 14. He says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? So here's the first part. Let's look at when it says, what good is it? See, the, the preferred position that this, 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 is, this thought means, what good is it means, there is a preferred position that actually brings an advantage to you. That's what it means. There's a preferred position. So by having faith and by connecting work to it, the goal is to actually be in position to bring an advantage, not just to you, but to someone else around you. Because if you just have faith, but you do nothing with it, then not only do you not benefit, but guess who else doesn't benefit? No one around you. So that's what he's saying. What good is it? And then he says, he says if, if this, word, this word faith without works, he says, this faith by your actions, this word action literally means work that accomplishes something. Not simply worthless work or mindless work, or it's all about propelling the vision of the kingdom of God forward. That's what James is talking about. The work he's talking about is propelling the kingdom of God forward. Some folks have got their thought processes twisted a little bit and thought the only really work that propels the kingdom of God forward is ministry work. If I'm a pastor or I'm a worship pastor or I'm an outreach coordinator or I'm a, child, a Sunday school teacher or, or whatever the case is, ministry work is what people think propels the kingdom of God forward. But the reality is that is the smallest percentage of work that propels the kingdom of God forward. The greatest percentage of work is what you do every day of your life. Whether you are at the gym working out or in your job that you're working at the grocery store when you're shopping or whatever the case may be, what you do is what propels the kingdom of God forward. 
So the Bible even says in Matthew chapter 28, he talks about the, the great commission that every church wants to boast on, says go into all the world. That phrase right there doesn't mean let me become a missionary. The phrase right there means as I am living my life, make disciples. As I am working in the marketplace, make disciples, win people to Christ, preach the gospel, baptize. That's the job of everyone, not just the pastor or the missionary or the worship leader or whatever. It's the job of all of God's people. And so my encouragement to you this morning would be don't be a James chapter 2 verse 15 and 16 believer. Because he says, Some, suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, and have a good day, stay warm, and eat well. If we were actually honest with ourselves and with me, you would say, at some point in time in your life, you have made that statement to someone. No, I, I'll pray for you, brother. I, I, somebody comes in honestly and openly shares, man, I need a, I need a, I'm homeless, I need a house, I need a place to live, or I'm homeless, I need a job, or I'm, I'm homeless, I need some clothing, I need some food, and you, and you, and you will talk to them, and you will love on them in, with your words, and then say, I'm going to pray for you to receive those things. When you have the means to provide something for them, we think that, oh, that's mine. The reality is nothing that you have is yours. It's all owned by God in the first place. He just loaned it to you. So we want to be good stewards of what he's given us. And so if you sit here and you're blessed financially, you have the opportunity to bless someone who's not blessed financially. It's not for you to worry about what they may do with it. It's not for you to worry about, oh, are they going to go buy drugs with it? No, it's your job to be, hold what you have like this. Not like this. Certainly not like this. You know, I am part of, a generation who helped usher in the, the help the hip-hop culture and I one of my my favorite music in all the world growing up was hip-hop music and I grew up in the nor Northeast and East Coast rap was better than any other rap in the world and that's just my opinion the, the lyrics are not always so great I grew up in a, in a city called Staten Island New York where was home to a, a rap group called the Wu-Tang Clan and no I'm not gonna preach the Wu-Tang Clan in here uh, get me run out of the city and out of the church. But there was a phrase in one of their songs that said, and I, I won't say it all because it's inappropriate in any, in any, other, any, any capacity, not just the church. But he said, basically, I'll paraphrase it. He says, don't be so stingy that you got short arms and deep pockets. And, and while that's a crude way, it's, I think, a very fitting way to describe James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. People get so caught up in what they have that they can't reach it to give to someone, to bless someone. That's why James is saying, what good, verse number 16, he says, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Let me tell you, prayer is great, but to someone who's hungry, food is great. And so when you feed someone, let me tell you this process, okay? You think you praying for them is going to manifest something that God is just going to do something because there's something just holy and righteous about your prayer that God's going to manifest manna in his life so he can eat. But the reality is he said if somebody's hungry, give them food. Because here's what happens. When you give them food, you, get, you earn the opportunity to preach them the gospel. 
We think we have the opportunity, we have the right to preach the gospel because, you know, God wrote it. He said, go preach it, so I have the right to do it. We fail to realize that this entire book is written through the context of relationship. And the greatest discipleship that takes place in the body of Christ is through relationship. I can stand up here and preach all day long, get amped up, excited, passionate, yell, shout, cry, weep, the whole nine. I can do all those things because that's who I am. But at the end of the day, that's just for 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. It's what happens Monday through Saturday in your relationships where real disciples are made, where real things happen, where real life takes place. You have to hold what you have with an open hand. Verse number 17, the Bible says, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. That phrase, faith isn't enough, really sat heavy in my heart, very heavy in my heart, because it would seem this, that, that James here is speaking contrary, and this is what I was talking about a moment ago, to what Paul said. Paul said, we are saved by grace through faith apart from our work. By grace through faith, apart from our work. James is saying, my faith without work is dead. So, well, which is it? Do, which, which one is it? I mean, is it, is, is, do I have faith because it's all about grace, or do I have faith because I work? The answer to that question is yes. You ever ask anybody two questions and they answer you with yes? Well, which one is it? Yes, it's both. It's both. Your faith, you cannot do anything to earn what Christ did in your life. That's what Paul is saying. You can't work for it because people were coming to Paul and saying, hey, this, this gift of God, this gift of the Holy Spirit, and, and I want to buy it from you. Paul's like, you can't buy this. This is, this is faith. This is received on faith through grace. It's, there's nothing you can do to earn this. However, once you've earned it, there's something absolutely required of you to do with it. And that's where people get it begin to miss the boat on this. So verse 17, this begins a significant shift in, James, in the book of James, but even in James chapter 2, and I want to look at it for a second because sometimes it's a source of confusion and has created these false doctrines. So the question then I'd have to ask is, what then is genuine saving faith? I think it's very important for both our, sal our own salvation, but even for those who we share the gospel with to understand and be very clear on this crucial matter. Because it does. It matters greatly. So what is genuine saving faith? And what is false faith that does not save? Because the Bible refers to both of these. And so the answer to the question, you have to first assume a couple of things. The first one I'm going to take on assumption is that the Bible says that Scripture was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Some folks out there will believe that the Word of God is just the book, a collection of stories and things written by men, so therefore it's flawed. And their logic, I can't argue and say, you know what, that, that logic does, would make sense. It was written by James, it was written by Paul, it was written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it was written by Moses, and it was written by people who are normal, everyday people like us, who failed in their relationships, who have made errors, who have sinned and fallen, so how could they write such something that's so perfect? Well, the Bible answers that question by saying it was penned by men, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Meaning it is full of truth and it is without error. So I have to make that assumption simply because the Bible says so. And then 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 suggests that 
and I believe it to be factual, that all Scripture, all Scripture inspired by God, good for, is meant for correction and discipline and growth. That's Timothy's take on it. So you can't really pit Paul and James against each other because the Bible teaches that God is sovereign and people have a responsibility. That's what the Bible teaches. God is sovereign. He is in control. He knows everything. He's in charge of everything. He's responsible. He's set everything in motion, but people have responsibilities. And in the church, you have to teach both. You have to teach the sovereignty of God, and you have to teach that you have responsibility. If I did not give you the fact that you have responsibility as a believer, then I would be failing in my job as your pastor. So here we are. You have responsibility. In order to understand this, I'm going to understand what James is saying. I'm going to look at, into verses 19 and 20. He says, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you, even the demons believe this. That's harsh. That is harsh. Folks tell me all the time, oh, well, I believe in God. And I tell them all the time, wow, cool, you're just the same as a demon. That's not popular. People don't like to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that they're like a demon. I don't want to hear that. You know, but so then he says in verse number 20, but the one thing that's interesting about that is the Bible says the demons tremble and in terror. How many people believe that God is real but have no fear? And I don't mean like, oh, hide me, I'm fearful, I'm scared. No, no, fear and awe and respect. None, even the demons have that. So I would almost submit those folks are actually a step below the demon. I know there's no amens on that one. The word believe, thank you. The word believe in this, in this phrase, in this context, that's the challenge right there is the, the, the differencing in, the words, in these words. The word believe means I affirm and I understand this to be true. You can find that kind of belief in a history book. Go to school, take a history class. This is what happened in World War II. I believe it and I understand it to be true because I have read it in a history book. i tell you what's interesting about that thought, a little side tangent. The Bible is very clear. It says it's inspired by God, and it's without error. We won't believe that. But a history book that was written by a man who is fallible, not inspired by God, we'll believe everything that says. Or even worse, Facebook, the internet, the stuff that circulates. Like, for instance, I'll give you, I'll give you a little, uh, two for instances. Number one, the, the circulation of all the celebrities that die. Everybody dies. The Rock died recently. I don't know if you saw that, but The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, died recently. And then he posted a picture of himself in his big, giant, ripped body and said, hey, I'm still here and living. So he, he yeah, with all his new tattoos, he's alive. You know, but the internet would say he was dead. And then here's what's worse. It gets like hundreds and thousands of shares. I'm like, folks... For real? And the, and the more recent one and the more serious one is how the internet and Facebook has absolutely run roughshod, ran roughshod over a pastor of a church just because he pastors a church of like 30,000 people in the middle of Houston, Texas and has an arena for his church. They all want to say that he's this, 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 and this, and he closed his doors to the people of Houston during this tragic time that took place in Houston this past week. And the reality is they base this off of a 
few pictures and what somebody else wanted to manufacture, and then it gets shared a thousand times. I don't care what you think about Joel Osteen or his theology or what he preaches or how he preaches it or anything like that, but here's the reality. Number one, it ain't for you to judge. That's number one. Number two, get the facts right before you decide you want to share something because that's what we don't do. We don't investigate. We think, oh, this is horrendous. Click share. Don't even read the whole thing. Take one phrase out of his entire statement to create a whole narrative of your own. And, and that's exactly why I told you what I told you about what's going on in my wife and I's life. Because otherwise, you guys would have, so, folks would have created their own narrative to the whole thing. And it could have got out of control, just the same as this. See, we see something, we read something, and we believe it to be true. And so we hang our hat on it, but we don't do that with scriptures. The one place where there is actually a perfectly written book that we won't believe it. And I think that's because we don't like what it says. Because it says I can't just do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, however I want to do it. You know, so then he goes on to say in verse number 20, how foolish, can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? He says, can't you see? In other translations, in the King James translation, it says, "Willst thou know. I just like the way that sounded. Willst thou know. Will you know? Do you, I mean, it's, it's basically saying, can you not see? Can you not perceive? Can you not get it in here and, and, and really feel it and know it that your faith without any kind of work to it has no use and no value? And then he goes on to explain how Abraham is the perfect example of that. And in the effort of time, I'm going to move on from here. So that's, a, that's, that's breaking that, a few of those passages down to hopefully understand that a little bit better. If you don't understand it any better, then Engage yourself in the word, study it, and when you have questions, ask them. I love having dialogue about the word of God, so I'll be glad to answer any of them and listen to every perspective. So, but I'm going to look at a few things that faith without works is, okay? Faith without works is absolutely a few things. Number one, and this is on your, in your note sheet, faith without works is talk with no walk, Faith without works is talk with no walk. What does that mean? It means simply that, like in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus tells us the story of a father who asks his son to go to work in the vineyard. And the son would not go, but later changed his mind and went. Then, in verse 30 of Matthew 21, then the father told the other son, you go. He said, yes, sir, I will go, but he didn't go. So, he had talk with no walk. Simply put, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you say yes, do it. If you say no, don't do it. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't talk the talk without walking the walk. It's the way it works. You know, the father was not interested in this particular parable. The father was not interested in lip service. And to tell you the truth, I don't believe that God, and this is because it's the parable and because it shows God, God's not interested in your lip service either. You know, I, I think that God could care less that some person who may or may not have any real faith of any kind would stand on a platform in front of the Grammys or the MTV Awards and say, I want to give all praise to Jesus first. While I'm half naked, let me give all praise to Jesus first. I don't think that God really gets a whole lot of glory from that kind of lip service. So don't talk the talk if you're not going to walk the walk. Number two. 
Faith without works is belief with no relationship. Faith without works is belief with no relationship. James challenged the people who said, I have faith, and others say they have works. He even noted the fact that demons believe this. Demons believe in God. But God wants far more for us than just to believe that he is real. He wants a relationship with us. That is his desire, a relationship with us. And let me tell you, the relationship that you have with Christ is so paramount to everything else in your life that I will reference a passage of scripture that I've shared with you before that I said scares the daylights out of me. Matthew chapter 7, 22 and 23, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, performed many miracles in your name. Notice the the common theme. It was in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And what did he say? I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. Man, so we can actually be so deceived that we think we are working for Jesus, yet that day he will say, I did not know you. That's powerful. That's fearful. God wants more more than anything is he wants relationship. He wants to know you. He already knows you, but he wants you to know that he wants to know you. He wants to be in that relationship with you to the point that he, you, can, you can relate yourself to God. He just he wants to meet you right where you are. No, you don't have to get yourself all prettied up and cleaned up first before you come to church. Man, you know how many times I have heard that? Oh, yeah, Pastor, I, I want to come, but I, I got to get some things in my life right. I'm like, no, no, no. You got this thing twisted. You come there, and God gets those things right for you. That's how that works. So faith without works is also number three, faith with no action. That's what it means. Acts chapter 26, verse 20. This is the New Testament church, the first model we have of how to do church here today. He says, I preach first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and all throughout Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that all must repent of their sin and turn to God and prove they have changed by the good things they do. Let me tell you something. Just because your heart was stirred in a service one time and you repeated some prayer that does not exist in Scripture does not mean your heart was changed. There's no fire insurance when it comes to salvation. There's no just in case. Let me repeat this prayer. Just in case. It doesn't exist in Scripture. It does not exist in our lives. It's not faith. It's fear. Faith means, man, God, I, my life is a mess. I'm a jacked up mess, but I love you, and I want to be different. I want to change, and I want to take steps towards that changing. That's what real faith does. There's far more to Christianity than showing up at church and sitting through a service. There's even more to it than praying and communicating with God. We prove our relationship with our actions. The thing that jacks with me the most is as humanity, we want to prove ourselves all the time, but we don't want to prove ourselves to God. Man, as a young man, as a young man, I wanted to prove myself to my father all the time. That's why I joined the army. I didn't do it because I wanted to. I figured dad would be proud. Let me prove to him that I'm a good son. And I joined the military because of that. 
We're so apt to prove ourselves on our jobs, to our spouses, in our families, to our extended family who may have told you that you were going to have no value and be worthless. You want to prove yourself so much, but we never want to prove ourselves to God. We think, oh, I don't have to do that. He already knows me. I don't need to prove myself to him. But the reality is, you're not proving yourself to him. You're proving that you have faith by what you do. You know, I, can, I, I compare it to my, my fantastic wife. I can, I can be married to my beautiful wife for over 17 years as we have, and I can talk to her every day like I do, and I can tell her that I love you all the time, and I can send her text messages throughout the day letting her know just how much I love you, and I can, I can do all those things, but if I never go home and I stay in other places or I don't wear my wedding ring, which I try never to leave the house without, or I never help with the kids, or I never make her dinner, or there's not much to prove that we are married, except that one day, I stood in front of people and said, I do. That's the same thing with faith. One day, you, God, you raised your hand and said, yeah, I accept Jesus, but then, you know, don't nobody know it. At church, don't nobody know it. At school, don't nobody know it. At work, don't nobody know it. You get on the ball field, don't know. <laughs> Competition happens, don't nobody know it. Just being real. Let me tell you, I've exploded off of a bench and yelled and ripped into an umpire before where I called him everything I could think of. Exactly. Good job, pastor. I've had, let me just be real. I had a, an incident on a ball field once where I was so frustrated that I took a bucket of baseballs and I went, wham! And I kicked it so hard, the lid popped off, and about 40 baseballs flew all over the field. Ten-year-old baseball game. Yes. And on top of it, my assistant coach is a pastor in this community. He called me and said, hey, Mike, I'd love to take you to lunch. I'm like, sweet. I sit down. He's like, bro, I'm worried about your testimony, my man. You know how humbling that is? Do the math. My son's 12. This isn't old. And I'm pastoring this church, so you can just do the math yourself. But this is, this is the reality of people. No one's perfect. We all make mistakes. And I actually then, just so you know, I don't want to leave this story empty, I actually went to my players and apologized. I said, I'm so sorry that I did that. I was way out of line. I have not kicked a bucket of balls since or really anything else for that matter. And I leave the umpires alone, for the most part. I'm a work in progress just like you. Don't judge me because I'm the pastor. <laughs> but if we never show that we have love for anyone, especially our spouse, then how will they know that we're married? If I'm not there, I stay somewhere else, I don't wear my ring, I do nothing for my family, how will they know that we're married? That matters. It may not matter to you, but it matters. St. Francis said this. He said, go from here and preach the gospel. Use words if you must. That's what he said. Go and preach the gospel. Use words if you must. And then James chapter 2 ends like this in 24 through 26. Says, so you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. This woman was a prostitute. A prostitute who was shown to have faith and trust in God. Most of us would look at that and shun them from society. But this one here decided, I'm going to hide these men. She knew there was something special about these men, so let me hide them so they don't get killed. 
She showed her faith that way. Said Rahab the prostitute, another example, she's shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so faith is dead without good works. So we talk about work, and I'm going I'm to share, a, um, yeah, real briefly, I'm going to share a very significant turning point. The most significant turning point in my life happened when I was 23, and I gave my life to Christ in December of 1998. That's the most significant turning point of my life. But the most significant turning point in my faith, in the development of my faith, did not happen for seven more years. For seven years, I served God. For seven years, I worked in the church. I worked full-time as, a, a, as an associate youth pastor in a church. Took no pay, no salary, no nothing whatsoever. I did it because I just loved God. I loved my church, and I loved what he was doing there. So let me just dedicate as much time as humanly possible. And so I did that. And so, but for se- that's what I did. And I didn't have the most significant turning point in my faith until I was 30 years old. I was a youth pastor in Laredo, Texas at the time. I had so many issues can't even get into them, but my biggest one that I had in my life was a dad issue. I did not like my father. I blamed him for so many things. So many things went wrong in my early, early parts of my life, and I blamed my dad for all of it all the time. And lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, that God would place me in a church with a pastor who reminded me just of my father. I mean, he was just like my dad. Didn't look like him, but he acted just like him. And I was just like, oh, I can't work here. It's killing me. I'm going to punch this guy in the mouth. I, I, that's, the, that's the way it was. And then he gave me an executive pastor that was just like my dad. So not only was there one, but there was two of them. And I knew my life was over. That's drama, just in case you didn't know. And I remember one Wednesday night, service was over. My executive pastor was in my youth auditorium, and he was correcting me, and I didn't like it. I didn't like that he was correcting me. I didn't like his timing. It was just after we had like 100 teenagers and worshiping and praising and dancing and, and, and God was just moving. It was powerful. And then he comes and he wants to bring me some correction on a Wednesday night. I'm hungry. I'm tired. Wrong time. My reaction wasn't so favorable. But it was in that moment that God spoke to my heart and I found myself on my hands and knees and in tears, broken, finally, I let God take all that, I washed away all that pride, and I let God do that work in me in that moment. And while that moment was liberating, that moment was powerful, that moment brought some freedom to me, that was just the beginning of the work. See, work is not just what I do with my hands for someone else. That's important. Very important. Working in the kingdom of God, serving in the body of Christ. All those things are of epic importance, but the greatest importance is the work that you do on this in your journey with Christ. That's the greatest importance. I would then sit with a counselor and I would talk and talk and talk and talk and do a lot of work on myself. I would read what he told me to read. I mean, I, 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 was, a response, I was responsible for a lot of work in the church. I was, already pr- I was already studying on a regular basis for messages. Now I gotta read even more on top of it, so it's not gonna be easy. It's gonna be very, very difficult. But the end result brought me to a place where, guess what I don't have today? I don't have a dad issue today. As a matter of fact, I love my dad so much. He's one of my closest and one of my best friends. And as a matter of fact, he would tell you, someone tried to pastor him one day. He's like, no, my son is my pastor. I'll go to him. 
And that to me was just like, you said, what? You know, that was a healing and a work that God did in my heart and in my life that took a long time. And there were bumps in the road and there's all kinds of challenges, but it's not, it's, let me tell you, your simple, oh, I'm a work in progress excuse is just that, it's an excuse. When you fail, oh, I'm a work in progress. Yes, you are a work in progress, but don't use it as an excuse. Don't use it as a crutch to barely limp through life because that's not what God wants. God wants you to do work. I remember I, my, my stepbrother, he calls me all the time. He's like, and he's like, how you doing, fat man? <laughs> I'm like, dude, shut up. I'm still bigger and stronger than you. I will whoop you, but I don't think that's true anymore. But, um, but he'll say that. And anytime I go to exercise or start working out or getting in shape, he says the same thing to me all the time. He will send me a text, go do work. Go do work. And so everything that you're going to do in life is work. So let me give you the blueprint plan to how to, how to walk through this. I'm going to run through this quickly because I'm, at a, I'm, I'm just about out of time. Here's the blueprint plan. Ready? The blueprint plan because we're keeping with God's blueprint and is designed for faith in the book of James. Here's the blueprint plan. Number one, action stimulates accountability. If you're going to take action and you're going to do something in your life, it'll stimulate accountability in you. What does that mean? That's nasty, nasty stuff. Because Ecclesiastes 4.2 says a person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. So what does that mean? That means simply if you're going to do work in here and be able to work with these, you need to be accountable to someone. You need to have someone in your life telling you, dude, I'm worried about your testimony. I'm a 40-year-old pastor, and I have someone in my life telling me, hey, I'm worried about your testimony, willing to call me out on my childish tirades. you got to have accountability in your life. When I went through that issue with my dad, I became, immediately became accountable to another pastor on staff who was a counselor who helped walk me through this challenge and this struggle. It was a necessary step in order to become what God wanted me to become. I would not be able to stand here and preach the gospel if I hadn't had that moment and done that work. Number two, so action stimulates accountability. Number two, action encourages responsibility. Action encourages responsibility. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 and 16 says, So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. If you are a believer in Christ, and I mean a genuine believer in Christ, not a demon believer in Christ. If you are a genuine believer in Christ, then you have a responsibility to how you live. Pardon me. I think that might be the first time I've sneezed in the middle of preaching. I don't remember ever doing that before. Wow. Crazy. But you have a responsibility because you are being watched. Never alone. Sorry. Wow. Holy cow. <laughs> Sorry. My ADD gets me off on that stuff. But you have this responsibility because you're influencing others. The moment you say you're a believer, you're influencing someone. The moment they know that you love Christ, you're influencing someone. Take it for real because it's a real responsibility. Number three, action cultivates longevity. Action cultivates longevity. Second Timothy chapter four, verse seven, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. Doing work, 
doing work, that's what action is, is doing work, it develops longevity. It develops a perseverant faith. Because let me tell you something, someone who doesn't work for the kingdom, when the storm comes, guess what they get to do real easily? Check out. Peace. And you know what? Then I don't see them for days, then weeks, then months. And then about eight months later, walk through the door and it's like, oh, hey, how are you? So good to see your face. But that's because when you aren't connected to the body and doing the work that God has, then there's no one to check on you. You've isolated yourself. There's no one to say, hey, are you doing all right? Hey, I've missed your face. And ultimately, that is the, that's, the, that's the domino effect of your faith. Doing things for God has set me up to finish this race. The work that I did for God long before I ever was a pastor, the work that I did for God, my very first job in ministry was that of a security guard in youth ministry. My responsibility, no guys and girls touching each other. That was my first ever ministry responsibility as a volunteer. Man, I liked it. I got to be the big, bad, mean man. And I did. I stood like this. Had my black shirt that said security on the back. Stood like that. That was a fun job. No, it was not. (laughs) But the work that I've done for Christ is what set me up to finish my race. The last one is this. John, you can come and get ready. Close as we close out. This one's the best part of it. This is like if I could find no better way than to close this message than with this phrase. Action expands possibility. The work that I do creates endless possibilities in my life. So let me tell you something. You never know when you're on your knee to a five-year-old that they will say something that just changes your life. You'll never know until you've actually gone out into a hurting and broken school like Woodrow Wilson, dealing with kids who have such a difficult home life, and you go there for 30 minutes to read them a book, and they grab a hold of your hip and hug you like you are the best thing they've ever seen, will change your life. The work that you do creates possibilities in your life for life change to take place. Not just with you, but with someone else. Because the reality is, let me help you for a second, it ain't about you. It ain't about you. It's about him, it's about his kingdom, and it's about everyone that needs the love of Jesus in their life. If you got the love of Jesus in your life, great, you're set. Now go give it to someone else. And then go give it to someone else and keep multiplying that because that's his desire. Action expands possibility. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 illustrates this the best when he says, Now all glory to God who is able. Someone say he's able. Through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Infinitely more. Endless amount of more that he can accomplish. You take your natural, you put it together with his super, and you get a supernatural life.
all because you decided to follow him first and then you decided to work for him. The possibilities are endless. Remember this phrase. It's up on the screen. Vision without action is merely a dream. Action without vision is wasting time. Vision with action can change the world.